Hello and welcome back to season two of Fertility Talks, the therapy fertility podcast. I'm your host, Renee Van Medin, and I'm so excited to be back hosting the second season of this podcast. Each week, I'll be sitting down with a different guest and chatting all things fertility. As always, it is our hope that through this series, through honest conversation and information, we can strip away some of the stigma that sometimes comes hand in hand with infertility and fertility treatment in Ireland. This week, I'm joined by a very special guest who many of you will know. She's an author, model, nutritional therapist, previous winner of Miss World, and now the most important title of all, mum, to her three beautiful children. She has an incredible story of hope after trauma and loss. I'm so delighted she's here with us today. So please welcome to the podcast, Rosanna Davison. So Rosanna, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Renee. Thank you so much. It's, um, you know, it's wonderful always to speak about um, our, our sur- surrogacy and fertility journey and then, you know, how our story unfolded. And, mm-hmm. you know, if our story and telling it can even help one other couple, then, um, you know, I, I'm pleased to tell it. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I'm delighted to be a guest. And I think, you know, how visible you've been over the last number of years has, has 100% helped so so many people so thank you so much for being so open and honest about the the highs and the lows of 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 what you've gone through um so mm. I think most people watching this and listening to this will know who you are but for anyone who doesn't maybe you could just tell me a little bit about yourself um and maybe you know what your background is where you grew up and what sort of family you come from and um what sort of childhood you had well, to start off, the most important job I have is uh, that I'm a mum of three children. I have three under three, so Sophia is two. And as I'll um, chat about, she was born via surrogacy in the Ukraine. And then we have our identical twin boys, Hugo and Oscar, who are 16 months old, flying around the place, um, <laughs> full of beans as well. So it's it's a busy household, but great fun. I have... Um, I suppose I've been very lucky over the past 20 years. Um, I have had a career in sort of the, the modeling and media industry. Um, I won Miss World back in 2003, which is crazy. That seems so um, long ago. Oh my I gosh. know, it's nearly yeah. 20 years um, when I was 19 years old in China. And, you know, it's I've enjoyed, you know, a, a really interesting and varied creative career with lots of travel, Um I've also trained in nutrition, so um, I started off by going to UCD. So I was actually in first year in uh, University College Dublin when I won Miss World. I was studying um, sociology and history of art. I deferred that for a year and then went back, finished the degree. And then later on in my mid-twenties, I decided to go back to college and train as a nutritional therapist. So that was a three-year course with, you know, clinical placement, um, did that. And then just in 2018 um, to 2019, I completed a master's in MSD in personalized nutrition. So it's always, I suppose, health, um, nutrition, particularly the sports science side has always been an interest and a passion. Mm. Um, and I, I said to my husband when I you know, finish the masters. I promise I won't do any more. You know, it's it's intense. And this is before kids as well. It's intense studying, and yeah. you know, your partner has to really put up with a lot of late sure. nights and early mornings. And I, I 
it was a full-time sort of 40 hours a week mm. course so um it was intense and now I'm talking about maybe going back in a few years and doing there's a course I'm looking at in clinical nutrition and dietetics and he's just going oh no more it's funny though I I find you do people, people yeah you do absolutely my my oldest brother is the same it, it's you know it's the eternal student of you know but it's it's that love of learning and 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 new things and meeting new people and developing your skills that you already have I think it is and I think when you're sort of you know, exhausted and kind of worn out from the whole process and you've handed in your final dissertation or sat your final exam, you think, okay, I'm done. But, you know, that urge to learn and the mm. curiosity comes back. And I'm particularly interested in sort of science and health sciences. And, you know, it's an ever-evolving area. There's always new research coming out, disproving old theories. And, you know, I find that fascinating. So, um, and I suppose there's an element at the moment with young children, I've sort of arranged my life so I can be at home with them mm. as much as possible. Um, a lot of the work I do is just online. So um, I suppose you do put certain plans and career goals on hold with small children. And then maybe when they get to an age where they're in school and, you know, you have a bit more time, then you can start to plan for um, the next few years. But of course, as we all know, life can hit you with all sorts of curves as well. <laughs> yeah absolutely um sorry absolutely. just to go back to your original question um I grew up in Dorky in County Dublin I have two brothers Hubie and Michael um who Hubie is four years younger and Michael six years younger but we're, we've always been very close they both live in London now and I uh, just had a very sort of happy outdoorsy childhood um, I think and I say it all the time to my husband I'm just so grateful to have grown up as probably the last generation without you know this constant access to smartphones and mm. social media and the internet you know I still remember when um, we got dial-up internet <laughs> at the house and having to you know sit there on the old computer and click and wait for ages and that familiar you know dial-up tone yeah. um maybe you're too young to remember no but, no 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 I remember um, <laughs> I don't I'm what I'm I think I'm four years younger than you as well no I remember mm. having the dial-up um I think if you played that sound there's just like a, a certain age group of people who know exactly what that is and then there's slightly younger people who are just like I have no idea what that sound is <laughs> Well, I suppose it's it's in the same vein as, you know, cassette players mm. or tapes. Actually, our, sure. our ch children were given, I'm just going off course here, but our children were given a, little, given a little teething toy and it's just a little old fashioned tape and they pick it up and put it to their ear and go hi 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 I mean they think it's a phone and you know, they'll they're like know what they're like trying is. to swipe it yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah and our two-year-old knows how to swipe she knows how to oh it's scary now. scary isn't it like I give her my phone locked and she takes videos like toddler yeah. cam you know going around yeah so yeah just what they soak up and what they kind of watch from what we're doing. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I'm always grateful for, mm. um, I suppose. And, you know, even at the start of my career, we communicated by fax. And <laughs> I remember my boyfriend at the time setting up my Gmail for me in probably 2005, 2006. Yeah. So you know, I feel like a, a dinosaur <laughs> saying all that. I know, but like there was but, something more simple about about life, you know? It was it was simpler and I sometimes think oh I miss the 90s and the simplicity <laughs> of it and the you know just thinking back to my childhood it was very much about being outdoors about just playing you know we were lucky enough 
to have a nice garden to play in mm. and parks nearby and the sea. Um, so yeah, it was just about going out, playing games, playing <laughs> games of football, badminton, all sorts of things in the summer. And that's really the kind of childhood that I hope to create for my children as well. So in terms of wanting children, you know, obviously you are very close with your family and did you always want kids? Was that, you know, as, as, as far back as you can remember, did you always picture yourself being a mummy? Do you know what? I thought that one day I would, but it wasn't sort of at the forefront of my mind. I think in my twenties, I was very sort of um, focused on career goals and travel and, you know, having fun as you do in your early twenties. And then probably later on getting more, of the sort of academic qualifications but Wes and I met in 2006 when we were 22 um, and he has he's from a family of four siblings he has two brothers and sorry a brother and two sisters and I suppose we we talked about kids at some point and we knew we always wanted a family but just not immediately but uh, it was really when we got married when we were both 30 that we started thinking well maybe we'll give it a year just to enjoy married life and then start trying for a family and at the time I was watching my friends you know have their first babies and infertility and miscarriage was not on my radar I I knew that my mom had had certain issues but that was years back she'd had an ectopic and she's been very open about that I've written about it in my book as well Um, but apart from that you know it just seemed that you'd got pregnant and had a baby and you know if you were young and healthy and fit then there would be no problem so um that's what I assumed would happen so in say in early 2016 I had just I just actually published my first book um Eat Yourself Beautiful at the end of 2015 finished sort of the press side of that and thought okay I have a little bit of a breather now um we can maybe see if this baby thing might happen and to our absolute amazement and delight it actually happened very quickly Mm. probably the first time and I remember feeling kind of funny symptoms we were on a walk um quite early in 2016 with friends I remember thinking god I'm very lightheaded I feel very sort of faint and you know I would have been quite fit and worked Mm. out regularly so after a few days I was still feeling like that and um, decided to take a pregnancy test. I was about four and a half weeks and you know, it turned out I was pregnant and you know we were just thrilled. Of course I started looking at my due date in the autumn that year. A few days later when I was about five weeks, maybe five and a half weeks, I couldn't keep it in any longer. <laughs> I told my family, of course I told my mom immediately, but um, we were just at a family gathering um, a week or so later and just couldn't you know keep I to know. myself yeah until my brothers and everyone was delighted and I remember my mom pulled me aside that that day and just said just be a little bit cautious she'd as I said had her own fertility issues um she'd had another miscarriage actually after my youngest brother was born so she'd unfortunately been through that and you know at the time I just thought it was mom being overly protective and you know I just said thank you but I'm sure it'll be okay sure my friends get pregnant and have a baby isn't that normal and mm. um, so it was all very exciting I went to the doctor at about kind of nearly six weeks she confirmed the pregnancy I got booked in for my first scan at eight weeks um, in Hollis Street and then um, it got to maybe just over six weeks and I had a little bit of bleeding mm. one evening and I rang the doctor the next day and she said don't worry you know a little bit of spotting can happen in early pregnancy with all that's happening inside of you 
Um, just let me know if it continues. So it, it stopped for a day and then it started again and it was a little bit heavier and I spoke to her again. And um, it was that night that it just it continued. It just got heavier and heavier and heavier. And then the cramps started. And, you know, as I found later on with pregnancies and then with the twin pregnancy, you can have a bit of spotting. But unfortunately, when the cramps start, it's it's never in my experience, a positive sign. So yeah, I spent that night um, really just curled up in a ball in the bathroom, sobbing. Um, just sorry, I've spoken about it so many times. I know, but, but still, it doesn't. It doesn't. The trauma um, stays yeah. with you um, for yeah. forever. I think. But yeah, I got to the point. I mean, Wes was great, but I got to a point where I was just um, nothing would kind of resolve the pain. I had a hot water bottle. Um, you know, it's just on the bathroom floor. And I just said, you know, you might as well go to bed because I'm not going anywhere anytime mm-hmm. soon. There's just a lot of blood. And luckily at that early stage, I mean, I was only six and a half weeks and there's no point in saying only because I think once you see the pregnancy test positive, you're pregnant and, mm-hmm. you know, all of your hopes and dreams start to sort of, you know, evolve around you and you start to imagine life as a parent. Um, but it is a little bit easier in the sense that there isn't that much pregnancy tissue um, at six and a half weeks. Yeah. So just a lot of blood. Um, so I ended up later that night, um, you know, I was on my own in the bathroom then at about two in the morning. And I thought, who can I ring? I didn't want to ring my mom and tell her. I didn't want to wake her. And it just so turned out that my brother was, my brother Michael was in L.A., and I thought, maybe I'll just ring him. I need someone to talk to. <laughs> and maybe I, maybe it was the blood loss or what, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. But I rang him and, you know, I said, Michael, you know, I was pregnant. Well, I'm not anymore. And I just need someone to talk to. And uh, he was just very sweet and supportive mm. and, and kind. And, um, you know, that, that helped. Um, and I suppose that really started the process of me realizing that having someone to talk to when you're going through, pregnancy loss or fertility struggles is of such crucial importance mm. um you know as it turned out we we needed sort of close friends and family to to lean on throughout that time even as a couple you um obviously need to support each other and Wes very much supported me but he you you kind of forget that it's you know that the partner involved um obviously whether it's a man or 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 a woman um they're you know they're experiencing the loss of hopes and dreams as well and it was his last baby too and his yeah. last pregnancy so he needed the support too so yeah. uh, you know my advice to to anyone going through it would always be just to, to have someone to talk to um I know clinics now avail of um, counseling services mm-hmm. and to if it's feasible for you to to look into that we didn't and in retrospect um you know I probably would have benefited from um, counseling services although now obviously writing a book about it and talking about it in podcasts and interviews has been quite cathartic yeah. um anyway so sorry cut a long story short um I went back I went actually into Hollis Street the next day um and they they scanned me it was a complete miscarriage and I just had to take a month to heal and to kind of you know it's it's a physical loss not just in terms of the the blood loss but also um, the very sort of deep primal feel- feeling you get when you're pregnant is suddenly taken away all those hormones drain quite quickly out of your body and it's you do feel like you've lost an important part of um, yourself as well as your future plans and it's emotionally draining of course as well 
Um, and, you know, I had to go back and tell my family as well. So um, we took a month and tried again a couple of months later. It worked again. But the same thing happened again, where it got to about six and a half weeks and bleeding started. And, um, you know, I, I had this sort of what they call a complete miscarriage, early miscarriage. And this happened again the third time. And um, after three, as some people may or may not be aware, um, in Ireland, people are generally or women are generally tested and, and their partners after three miscarriages. So I remember going back to um, the Marion Clinic in Hollis Street and getting tests done. And they they looked at all sorts of things, like obviously your hormone um, panel. Um, they looked at blood coagulation. And things like thyroid, we had um, Wes tested, so his um, semen analysis done, and that was fine. That was because it's obviously, as we know, much more so now, it's 50-50 when it comes to, to men and women in, in terms of fertility. So I was, you know, I, I made sure that Wes was clear and before I, you know, could could kind of realize that it was all down to me. Um, we did karyotyping done, which looks at um, genetic compatibility. Mm. And all that really came out. I mean, I had an awful lot. I can't even count the amount of blood tests and scans and different things I had done over those few years. But um, all that really showed up was um, a condition called uh, genetic, it's a genetic condition called factor V Leiden, which is passed on from my mum's side. Mm. So it's heterozygous, which means it's only from one side of the family. And it just means my blood is around 20% more likely to clot, which meant that for pregnancy as pregnancies, I was advised to um, inject with heparin, which I did. So any you know future time I got pregnant, I would have to inject in the stomach with heparin and, um, and then throughout obviously my pregnancy with the twins. And you just learn, anyone who's been through the IVF or surrogacy process, you just learn to self-inject and... It's never pleasant, but I suppose it just becomes part of your routine, your morning routine, yeah. because um, in terms of, you know, heparin anyway, you have to do it at the same time every day. Um, so I did that. Um, I was prescribed, you know, things like progesterone pessaries, which aren't particularly They're pleasant. They're really not um, pleasant at all. No. I remember those on our first IVF no. and yeah, I, no fond memories of the pessaries. But they are more pleasant than what I was also prescribed later on, which was progesterone injections, which is quite a big needle, which goes right into the glute muscle and causes yeah. quite a bit of um, bruising. Yeah, so, I had those um, as well. Those are yeah. more painful. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're not fun. <laughs> yeah, so things like that, um, baby aspirin, um, folic acid. Mm -hmm. I had all sorts of tests to see if I was um, genetically sort of able to um, metabolize folic acid properly and I, I am so you know as I said the only thing that ever really showed up in that batch of tests anyway was the factor five which was able to be treated with heparin and um, so went through that so I'm trying to summarize these mad few years but we continued in this vein anyway of getting pregnant very easily but then losing them quite quickly at, at around the six and a half week mark I saw about five different specialists between Ireland and the UK and some of them were helpful. Some of them just said, I remember one doctor just saying, you know, in my 25 years of fertility practice, I've never seen someone who gets pregnant so easily, but just can't maintain a pregnancy. And mm. nobody could really 
sort of put their finger on what was happening. Um, so I ended up doing an awful lot of my own research. At the time, I was um, doing a full-time master's degree. So I was in front of the computer anyway. I felt confident that I could research um, what I wanted to look at in terms of the academic papers. And I remember researching different areas. So looking at, you know, the blood coagulation side, you know, fine, that was ticked. Thyroid, that was fine, tick. And I was ticking off all the different things that I thought could be dysfunctional in my body. And of course you go through this whole sense of self-blame. And mm. um, at the beginning, certainly of our journey, I was thinking maybe I shouldn't have had that cup of coffee or why did I go to a Pilates class or should I have gone for this walk? Maybe I dislodged my embryo and that's what caused mm. it. So you do go through all these mixed emotions thinking that you're the one to blame. And again, if I can give any advice to any woman or, or couple out there, it's never, never to blame yourself. I mean, the absolute majority of pregnancy losses are down to a genetic anomaly um, in the embryo or, you know, some sort of um, problem maybe with implantation or, you know, it's it's never never a good idea to start the self-blame process and eventually I did sort of come out of that mindset but it wasn't until mid-2017 where we'd been going through this every month or so you know every cycle or so should I say I'd get pregnant lose it maybe I'd wait a month maybe I wouldn't um it got to anyway middle of that year and one of the doctors I was seeing um said to me to to or advised to go and get a hyster um hysteroscopy um, which involved looking into the structural side mm. of my uterus to see if there would be any structural issues so I went to the Beacon Hospital um, it was done under anesthetic and uh, when I came around the surgeon confirmed that they had cut out a septum which is a piece of tissue which took up only about 10% of the inner lining of the fundus, the top bit of my uterus. But he said, actually, that can impact on implantation because it's a little bit more fibrous than the rest of the lining of your uterus. So if your fertilized egg is continuously trying to implant in this septum, then it's probably not getting the adequate blood supply and nutrients it needs to grow. So he said, actually, that's likely the issue. Yeah. So um, he said to wait a couple of months to heal and then to try again. Sorry, so can I just ask again. how many miscarriages had you had at the at this point before you had the hysteroscopy? Um, I had fourteen in total before the last one before the boys. So um, maybe we were halfway through at this stage. Wow, six so or already, seven. Wow, okay, and. But do you know what? It's bizarrely, I count myself lucky that they were early ones because you sort of just adapt in a very strange way to mm -hmm. what you're going through. And I just took a very sort of pragmatic approach after the first couple and just thought, well, we, you know, we're, we're young enough. Um, obviously, we're fertile enough in terms of our egg and sperm quality because we're getting pregnant. So there must be some other maybe medical issue that we can resolve. So it became more of just a quest to find the issue mm. um, rather than getting too emotionally bogged down and what was happening. Mm. I think if, and as well, I never got to the stage, I should say with scans that we were seeing heartbeat, yeah. you know, the pregnancies always failed before it got to the stage of, of scans or heartbeats. So I never felt that we were losing, we were losing obviously our hopes and dreams mm. and our due date and all that kind of thing, but we weren't losing a physical beating heart mm. you know baby yeah. so that sort of comforted me in some way mm. um 
but yeah, got pregnant quite quickly after the hysteroscopy and I thought, this is it, you know, mm. this is going to work. This, the problem has been resolved. And of course the same thing happened again at the six and a half week mark. And I remember just hitting a very wobbly point then, you know, a dark point mentally and just thinking, well, we've tried everything at this stage. This isn't the issue then. Maybe it's not going to work out. You know, Wes and I then began began having conversations about how our life would look without children. And, you know, that we travel and maybe set up businesses. We had, you know, different passions in life. And I would set up, you know, nutrition clinic and, you know, do all these sorts of things. And we'd, we'd support each other and pull ourselves through. But then I started thinking, but he really wants to be a dad. He was a fantastic um, uncle to his niece and nephew. And I thought I'm blocking him from his dreams. I have to set him free. And I began thinking I, I need to just tell him to leave me and find a new partner to have a family with. And I sort of stewed over this. I'm laughing now because we're knee deep in nappies, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I was very serious about it. And I sort of thought about it for a few weeks. And then I just said to him, you know, Wes, I think that I'm not the woman to give you a family. And I think you need to think seriously about finding someone else. You're young enough, you know. Obviously, it's not that easy to get a divorce on, on these grounds. <laughs> but maybe we could just. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's bizarre to look back on, but I was at that darker point mm. where I just thought this is what I have to do for him because I love him. Mm. But of course, he sort of just smiled and said, Rosie, I married you, you know, because I want a family with you. And if it doesn't happen, then we'll we'll have a happy life and we'll, mm. we'll find a way to um, enjoy our lives without a family. As lots of people do, I know, you know, I'm well aware that kids aren't everyone's idea of happiness in life either. But for us, it just was, I suppose, because we came from that kind of family environment. And so, um, so this is 2017 anyway, and it continued like this. I, I ended up going to a different um, reproductive immunology expert kind of later that year. And I got more tests done for immune system. And this was kind of the last area I looked at I I suppose because I'd always read that the research wasn't concrete enough um reproductive immunology in terms of research is quite um a gray area um and you know the tests are maybe this is back now 2017 Mm. things may have changed but um it's it's harder to pinpoint uh, when you compare it to something like thyroid or you know bloods hormones so I went to um a man who had read was quite an expert in the field and he sent me to get um, what's called Chicago bloods done um, and it's expensive I mean it was over a thousand euro to get this blood panel sent over to the states to be tested but anyway a few weeks later he rang me to say that um, the tests showed that I had a significant imbalance in what are called th1 and th2 cytokines and so he felt that my immune system was in a, a sort of constant fight or flight mode where um, it was sort of constantly, so I'm just trying to simplify it, but it was just constantly looking out for danger and ready to fight any intruders. And he felt that maybe um, my husband's DNA was viewed by my immune system as a, a foreign invader and it sort of you know, it went to kill it. Yeah. It attacked it. Yeah, my body was attacking my husband's DNA when implanted. And of course that made an awful lot of sense 
Um, so he prescribed um, a couple of different immune suppressant medications, um, corticosteroids, and it was quite a high dose of uh, prednisolone, I think it was. Yeah. Um, I think it was about 25, 20, 25 milligrams a day. And I remember I had to take it like six in the morning or else I wouldn't sleep that night. I mean, it gives you mm. such a kick of adrenaline or adrenaline. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah in the morning that I used to, although I liked it at first because I thought this is great I can get I'm so getting much so done. much done yeah <laughs> I was buzzing around all day but yeah after a few weeks I did begin to notice I remember Wes saying to me oh I can see a little bit of puffiness here mm. and I was like thanks and I did begin to notice some side effects mm. and anyone who's been on relatively high dose steroids will say that you do begin to feel a bit puffy around the middle on the face there are those yeah. side effects, um, but I persevered. Um, I was seeing that, and you know, I do look back at pictures of me from late 2017, early 2018, and I can see the roundness <laughs> in my face. Um, so I did that. I also had a nurse come over every few weeks to administer a drip. I'm trying to remember what it was called, but it, it was um, intralipids. Intralipids, yeah, that was it. Yeah. It was like a mixture of soy and egg yolk, I yeah. think. And again. I used to sit watching telly and she used to come over often on a Friday night and sit in front of the late late and she'd um, just pop a little needle into my arm and I'd sit there for a couple of hours and it was meant to sort of coach your immune cells in a certain way to to downregulate them. And so I did that and I also took a course of Humira injections. Now Humira was designed for um, uh, like inflammatory autoimmune diseases like Crohn's or rheumatoid arthritis. Um, but again, I was uh, prescribed it on the basis that it would suppress my immune system, although I was only allowed two injections of it because it's it's powerful. And I remember getting side effects like headaches and um, little mouth ulcers. Mm. And again, I persevered. So it came to the point where I had to do um, the half Chicago bloods just to check if the medication had had any effect on suppressing my TH1 cells or TH1 cytokines. And it had, but not enough. So this is kind of end of 2017. And I eventually went back. It was kind of early the following year, probably in the new year. I went back to one of the original doctors I'd seen and said, you know, I can't keep taking all of this medication. It's having side effects. I'm I'm feeling puffy and tired. And, you know, what, what will I do? And he, I remember, suggested, um, well, he said to me, I, I don't, think it's likely at this point that you're going to be able to carry your own baby mm. you know maybe something like surrogacy would be um, a solution because you've got age on your side we were still kind of 33 I suppose at that stage and you appear to have good egg quality and quantity nothing wrong with Wes so I stewed over this then for another few weeks I remember saying to Wes um, in early 2018 like, I can't imagine a stranger carrying our baby thousands mm. of miles away I just I don't think I could do it the thought horrifies me mm. and he he said yeah but then I said maybe it's our only chance so it took an awful lot of um mental preparation and thinking through it and reading stories online and I happen to know a couple of people who've been through surrogacy as well um took a lot of that to really start the ball rolling in terms of maybe starting to research it so the first thing we did was to find a lawyer who specializes in international surrogacy law um so we went to meet her in i think it was around february 2018 
I remember it was probably the end of the month because I remember the time of the big snow. Remember the beast <laughs> from the east? <laughs> I remember driving into town and there were snowflakes everywhere. And, you know, it, it, it would just, yeah, it sticks out in my head. Mm. Um, we spoke to her and she recommended uh, Ukraine as... Um, as being a successful country for surrogacy for for Irish um, married couples so she just went through all the the legal side and it was overwhelming to say the least I mean I didn't even know where to begin with what you know the information she was giving given giving us and mm. um, but we went home with a booklet and a list of clinics and agencies to um, look at and as anyone who's been through surrogacy in Ukraine will know it's it's um, the agencies and clinics are often partnered together because they work in tandem. So she'd given me a list of ones that her clients had had success with and been happy with. So from there, I just Googled <laughs> the hell out of it. And I Googled a lot of different um, clinics and agencies. And the, you know, I spoke to them and the, the one we decided to go with New Life was the one I was just most impressed with in terms of their response and their um, English and their, um, I suppose, the information they gave us. And it just seemed simple, more simple, I suppose, in terms yeah. of um, the information, because it's absolutely overwhelming when you start to research it. And, you know, Ireland doesn't have any sort of structure in place, really, um, other than what people like me and you are, are saying about mm. surrogacy and you know assisted human reproduction and um, there isn't that much structure in place for information it's very um, difficult for people you know when you're you're literally shooting in the dark and and all you have to cling on to is what other people are telling you what you can find on the internet but there's no you know support system in place there there's no official department that, that no. supports people you know and then you're hearing stories or reading stories about people being, um, you know, swindled out of thousands mm. and clinics, you know, taking their money and running. And it's really a daunting, challenging mm. process. Um, but, you know, I decided anyway to, to go with my gut with um, this clinic. And um, the next step was them to send over um, the, the booklet. So it's about the self-cycle for intended parents. Um, for surrogacy and read through it it's about 12 detailed pages and um, just all about the surrogacy process if you're using your own eggs and um, from there really it meant um, well what it became was about 10 months of um, scans and blood tests and contracts so we started with the, the tests and scans because we I suppose needed to to be accepted onto the program and as anyone has been through Ukrainian surrogacy will know they're extremely strict in terms of who's allowed onto the program you have to have sort of a medical condition or um you know a, a letter from your doctor which I had to say why medically you can't have a child you know it could be failed IVF cycles multiple miscarriages it could be a structural issue in your uterus um obviously anyone who's been through um you know cancer survivor anyone who's been through um, medical issues like that um you know would be able to apply um, in that way so I had to get all sorts of medical letters first um, I had a very understanding supportive GP who I was able to show her the list of uh, blood tests I needed but I mean they had to be sort of divided out so you know I'd go one week to her her clinic and she'd do um, blood tests for STDs and infectious diseases but they had actually a three-month um, 
period. So if you didn't get everything back You'd over, have to repeat you know, them the information again, yeah. back, you have to repeat it. Yeah. So I had to do that. And because of my um, blood clotting condition, I had to, uh, you know, book to see a um, consultant in St. James's on um, genetic um, hematology. And that took a while, it took a while to get the results back. I had to get sort of um, all sorts of lung scans, ovary scans, breast scans to show I didn't have breast cancer. I had to get um, blood tests for cancer markers in my blood. I mean, ultimately, it's to protect you and the surrogate. And that's what I really liked about um, the clinic and, and generally the laws in Ukraine is that they are set up to make sure that all parties are, are protected legally and medically. And that's actually something that gave me confidence, even though the process took a long time. Yes. So after sort of, yeah, what seemed like years of blood tests and, you know, everything has to be signed by your clinic. Um, you know, you have to get the physical letters rather than emails. I remember I had to, I had to drop blood samples into the virology lab at UCD because it was quicker than getting a courier. I had to send a blood sample off to Greece for another test. What it showed me really is that, again, Ireland is not set up. There's no one stop shop you know there's no one place you can go to get all of your tests you need for your surrogacy or fertility journey you know to think that I could get some tests in the um, fertility clinics some of them they just said no we can't do that for you you'll have to go elsewhere I had to get some in the GP I had to get a smear test sent up north privately you know it was complicated Mm. so when I got to the point anyway that I got everything in I had to send it by um you know, courier off to Ukraine and that took a couple of weeks and um, eventually it got over there. They sent us the contracts. They had to be looked over by a solicitor here because everything is, it's in English and Ukrainian, but you just want to make sure. I mean, there's pages upon pages of documents. Eventually everything was signed on the 11th of November uh, 2018. And from then the clinic, then it was up to them to, uh, you know, select a surrogate, select a good match for you. And from then, the process was actually quite quick. Uh, they have really a database of women who apply to be surrogates. And they there are certain criteria. She, um, you know, they need to have given birth naturally with no complications to their own child. They, you know, there's a certain age bracket, you know, no health complications and obviously no complications within birth, no history of miscarriages, um, non-smoker, non-drinker. And when you're matched with your surrogate, you just get, you know, a short kind of two page document with all of their information, you know, and it's not all of their information. Sorry, it's quite basic. Just, you know, name, age, occupation, that kind of thing. And you just say yes or no to whether you um, want them to be your surrogate. Mm -hmm. So we saw a picture of her, just got a good feeling about it and said yes. And then it took only a few weeks for her to go through all the testing because obviously they've got the setup there to get all of her tests done to show that she is healthy enough to accept our genetic material. Yeah. So then just it involved in early 2019, it was February, sorry, 2019, traveling over to Kyiv where we spent three weeks going through the egg retrieval process and well, egg stimulation, egg retrieval. I actually picked up all the um, meds I needed in Ireland um, under the drugs payment scheme. It worked out. Um, it's a lot cheaper. Better. And, and, and yeah, yeah a lot cheaper. of times people going abroad for treatment don't realize that you can get your meds here and bring them with you. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I had a very supportive um, pharmacist who helped me with that. 
um who's fa- he had a family member who'd been through similar so um yeah just brought brought everything over on ice I mean I had a little um because some of the you know injections that you need need to be kept in the bridge so I just had a little ice pack on the plate <laughs> with my little <laughs> my little injections um so yeah I just started the process it took um a week for so you start the stimulation process when your period arrives so my mum came over for the first week and we actually had a lovely week just sightseeing and doing touristy things in Kiev. and I must say it's a fantastic city I mean mm. full of culture and history and wonderful people and a really thriving um gastronomic scene as well mm. we're both veggies so um well vegans and we both found loads of vegan cafes and restaurants and we just thought it was wonderful so yeah. i'm obviously heartbroken like everyone else is at the moment um yeah but yeah, so you were that, doing that totally distracted me so okay. um anyway sorry my period would not arrive so um I went to the clinic after a couple of days they gave me a progesterone shot to try and stimulate it and that didn't happen but funnily enough Wes was flying over after a week of me being there and within an hour of him arriving my period arrived so it was (laughs) it was just waiting for him to get it was like well it was like my body thought well no he needs to be here for this process this is his process too yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he can't you know it was bizarre anyway bizarre timing I remember I texted my mom. She was on the plane. I texted her and said, it's here. <laughs> anyway, I was able to get started. Um, and it was just about 10 days then of the injections. They were really careful to monitor me for ovarian overstimulation um, syndrome, which can be obviously dangerous. Um, did that. Everything was fine. I went in after about 10 days and did the um, egg retrieval procedure under just a light anesthetic um, they got 23 eggs. They were really happy with how it went. You know, I, I made a decent enough recovery. We actually even managed to go for dinner that night just to oh, celebrate. Wow. <laughs> were you not I completely felt- out of it? Once, no, once the sort of anesthetic wore off, I was like, I was just buzzing to be yeah. through it. I mean, it was just, and as anyone who's been through IVF knows, it's just a series of little victories where you think, okay, that's ticked off. I can just relax now. This bit is done. So it was like that. I didn't ever want to look too far into the future because I I didn't know how the process would end. I didn't know if it would work. So it was just a little series of victories. Um, And then from then we, um, we just went home and the surrogate went in a few weeks later and um, just did the frozen embryo transfer into her. And then we had the two week wait, obviously, for um, any news. And that was terrifying. But I just had to stay as distracted as possible. I didn't think I got a wink of sleep in those two weeks. Just thinking, is she pregnant? Is she not? But I actually had a positive feeling about mm. it. It just seemed like the whole process had gone smoothly. Mm. Um, so I had a good feeling. And then 26th of March, 2019, we got the email to say that she was pregnant. Her bloods were looking good. Um, Her first scan would be in a couple of weeks time. And then from then really, it was just a series of living from scan to scan. Um, Obviously it's terrifying for the first 20 weeks, but we got through it. Um, You know, the relief every two weeks of the first kind of few scans, you get the 12 week one. And then I think it was 16 and then the 20 week scan, everything was clear. You know, she had her, her genetic tests done and anomaly scan and that kind of thing. And then by 26 weeks, I was thinking oh, I can start buying baby stuff, um, which I did. Um, 
you know, the year just flew, really. I just kept as busy as possible. We did a lot of travel because we thought we might not get much done when <laughs> yeah. she arrived. Little did we all know. Um, it got to November and 2019 and the doctor thought that maybe our surrogate would give birth a little bit earlier as she'd had her own daughter at 38 weeks Mm -hmm. so he advised us to fly over at 37 weeks which happened to be the 11th of the 11th 2019 so exactly a year to the day that we had signed the contracts wow so I thought that was significant and anyone who's into numerology I suppose would say 11 11 um it certainly followed me around for those few years um So we flew over and had, I suppose, about a week and a half of wandering again around Kiev, just enjoying it, really, enjoying the city until Sophia was born. And, you know, as I've said before, there's nothing that can prepare you for watching a stranger give birth in a foreign country to your own child. It was just the most exhilarating, kind of terrifying, amazing experience. And I remember just being stunned as I walked into the room and saw her on the birthing chair and Sophia her head was crowning and you know, our surrogate was just in deep concentration and my mum sort of gave me a gentle nudge I was like I don't know what to do you're like she's like get but, in there <laughs> yeah and I remember the the doctor as we'd agreed I would cut the umbilical cord which is significant because it's it's handing you know so again I've talked about this so many times but it's still the, the moment that it tears me up but you know it's the moment that you're being handed your child out of your surrogate's care into your care and then they become yours you know and you know they're in your arms sorry um (laughs) it just comes out of nowhere um but you know you've obviously been through this whole experience um but I remember you handed me the scissors or whatever the medical version of the scissors is and I was like do you have a left-handed pair I'm (laughs) left-handed and he just looked at me like okay and I just felt so ridiculous in that moment I just didn't know what to say and you know when you're just overcome with kind of the emotion of it all and Sophia was then um she actually wasn't handed to us she was obviously given to the midwife who um they cleaned her and weighed her but I remember just like going over to her surrogate and just going thank you thank you thank you bawling crying she must have just thought what who are you what are you doing I mean we had met her the previous week at her final scan but I mean the woman was obviously just exhausted after giving birth she was a the hero and I, I'll never be able to, um, you know, thank her enough for what she's done. And obviously, as I've, I've spoken about recently, she's um, caught up in the situation in Ukraine. She's in a city called Kherson or Kherson, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, um, down in the south of the country. It's occupied at the moment. And I contacted her at the very beginning of um, the war and, uh, and said to her, you know, we want you to come and live with us, with her little girl. Um, Obviously, we would we would do absolutely anything mm. for her because she's given us our our daughter, and um, we've tried everything to get her out. Um, I've I've looked at um, humanitarian um, organizations busing people out. You know, I've tried kind of every angle, but she just said that the Russians are controlling who comes in and who leaves, and she's seen people being shot at trying to leave. So she just doesn't feel like there's any way she can get her little girl who's mm. five I think um out of there safely so she, she's just going to shelter for now but um hopefully I'm, I'm staying positive that we yeah. can you know do that for her after what she's done for us um yeah so so 
you know, that was our experience kind of in Ukraine. We were able to bring Sophia home after a couple of weeks and to um, get home in time for Christmas. Um, what was you know, it like introducing her to your family? Um, well, my mom was there with us in Kiev when she was born, but my dad came to meet us at the airport when we landed. And it was lovely. You know how lovely Dublin Airport is um, at Christmas? For Christmas, just, yeah. The decorations and yeah. the music. And it was just, it's just such a, an amazing feeling to you know to land in your own country with your you know new baby my dad was there sorry I don't know where this is all coming from maybe I just, that, you're gonna set me up maybe I just need a good cry maybe <laughs> <laughs> um but my dad was there and he I just have the most gorgeous pictures and videos of him just cuddling her obviously his, his first grandchild as well and then we we drove home and Wes's family had decorated our house with like flowers and welcome home balloons and, um, you know, just everything was set out for our new arrival. Yeah. And Sophia, actually, she was great. She actually slept for the whole flight. Apart from once, I, I, she woke up and I changed her and she had a bottle. But she was, um, you know, she was kind of fine. Sorry, two flights, should I say. So um, she slept for most of them Yeah. Uh, anyway on the way home. And um, she got home and we did, Wes that she showed me the video recently, we just did a little tour. She was fast asleep, but we brought her around to her house to <laughs> show her. It was so sweet, but we showed her her bedroom or her nursery yeah. and, you know, the cot by our bed where she'd yeah. be and gave her a little tour of her home. So, um, you know, that was our first night with her. And, you know, it was just lovely to have our first Christmas with our, our new baby and um, life sort of continued in this lovely tired exhausted baby bu bubble until as we all know we went into lockdown um in in March 2020 but the funny thing is now and I, I feel a bit silly even looking back on it now but it was my first time obviously experiencing that level of sleep deprivation with a newborn and Sophia would party all night long <laughs> and I was exhausted um so around February 2020 I remember just thinking god I'm so tired all the time and I I feel nauseous and I was mm. I, I was getting these sort of waves of nausea I remember one evening Wes coming home with an Indian takeaway and saying do you want some and we just got the smell no I had to leave the room and I thought, God, the sleep deprivation business is bad, you know, mm -hmm. and I probably wasn't eating properly. I was, you know, you just grab snacks on the go and takeaways and all that kind of thing when you have a new baby. Um, so I thought, God, I really have to start looking after myself a bit more and, yeah. you know, just hopefully we'll get some sleep. So um, I was on the Late Late Show at the end of February 2020 talking about how I couldn't have a baby and, you know, we had gone through the surrogacy mm -hmm. process and had Sophia and the very next day I got what I thought was my period now I'd missed two months uh, two cycles and I hadn't got it in two months and again I just and it seems so naive because obviously I know now <laughs> but um, obviously I just thought God, you know I'm so sleep deprived that my body is all over the place yeah yeah so I thought oh my period's here it was just a bit of light spotting that went on for a few days kind of strange but um so this, so it would have started on the Saturday. So on the Tuesday, I was changing Sophia in the evening. I just suddenly got this sharp, intense, like horrible cramping. Mm. And I had to um, get Wes to finish changing her. I had to get a hot water bottle, sit mm. down, and it was getting worse and worse. And I stood up and look, I know your listeners are probably well, well used to, well used to it. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, 
you know, thankfully the conversation about female bodies has evolved enough yes. that we can talk about this stuff. But there was an awful big gush of blood yeah. all over the floor and um, clots, big yeah. clots like the size of my fist or wow. the size of the palm of my hand. Yeah. And I thought, gosh, this is a heavy period. <laughs> yeah. Obviously Ooh. just to build up. And so I ran to the bathroom. Wes was just looking quite shaken yeah. and um, just sat on the loo for a bit. And just there was a lot of blood coming out and tissue mm. and clots and all the rest. And Wes was coming into me saying, I'm going to call your mum because yeah. this is not normal. Yeah. And I said, no, no, it's just a heavy period. I'll be fine. And it got to about, it was about half eight or nine at the stage at night. And um, I was like, again, lying in a ball of pain with a lot of blood around mm. me and saying I'm okay and um he called my mom my mom rushes over and says you're not okay get your coat on or I'll, I'll get your coat for you we're going straight to hospital so she drove me into Hollis Street I was sent I mean they're fantastic there mm. they just look after you so quickly I was brought into the emergency department um and they took a urine sample first and then some uh, tissue samples and obviously checked my vitals I mean blood pressure and that kind of thing and I was okay and they came back a little while later and said, well, our lab has confirmed pregnancy tissue and our urine test has confirmed that you had a pregnancy. And, you know, they were saying, I'm so sorry. Um, when was your last period? 19th of December. I remember that. So I would have been coming up to 11 weeks mm. pregnant. Mm. And rather than being, I mean, I was obviously shocked because I'd never got to that stage. I mean, yeah. I my body had never gone on more than a month after mm. that six and a half week mark but I remember saying to the nurse this is amazing you know I can't believe I've I've never got this far in a pregnancy and she was a bit taken and she was like why are you happy and yeah I was like this is incredible mom my mom was there <laughs> holding my hand I was like mom can you believe this what's, what's, what's happened and you know she kind of gently you know rubbed my arm and said you know we have a support service if you'd yeah. like to avail of that and I said oh, I'll be fine I have a little three-month-old baby to come home to and she Obviously, was probably yeah been... she was probably like what is this woman on yeah <laughs> and um I remember separately she and another doctor said to me you know I'll be quite fertile after a pregnancy at this stage mm. and whatever goes on maybe hormonally in your body so just be a little bit careful mm. if you want to avoid a pregnancy again quickly you know you might need time to heal and to recover I remember you know hearing that and thinking ah this maybe I won't be careful maybe mm. Mm-hmm. this is something there's something here something has changed yeah. whether and we weren't in lockdown at that stage but obviously my life had slowed down with a newborn I wasn't traveling and I used to travel a lot for work I used to have a very fast-paced kind mm-hmm. of busy life and I had slowed down and um I thought maybe there is something here so I kind of stopped I mean you lose track anyway of your cycle and what's going on anyway after a miscarriage and it all goes a little bit haywire so I had no idea where I was anyway and we weren't it's not like we were trying actively to have a yeah. baby and um, but we went into lockdown I remember and um this is kind of towards the end of yeah so we sorry went into lockdown in mid-March just slowed down the whole pace of life slowed down it was yeah. actually quite nice to just have no pressure obviously the horrors of the outside world and China and northern Italy mm. were were extremely you know awful to to watch but in terms of just I think we all just slowed down to routine at home and I remember it got to kind of mid-April and um, I was again just feeling really lightheaded and tired and I recognize this feeling now obviously from before 
and I thought oh not again I mm. don't want to have to go back to Hollis Street and have another miscarriage and you know so soon after the last one and I suppose my first feeling was just kind of not this again so I did a pregnancy test I remember it so well it was the 19th of April 2020 and um, it was my birthday weekend and I remember I'd just been feeling really emotional and really you know I was I'd say like I am today crying and everything but um, <laughs> I'm not pregnant <laughs> yeah um, I was about to say <laughs> <laughs> and I took the test and I walked down and showed it to Wes and we both just looked at each other and kind of went oh. you know it wasn't yeah. a positive happy excitement at mm. all it was it was a feeling of kind of dread thinking okay we're in lockdown we have no family support mm. and we're gonna have to go through this again yeah um and I I figured that I was probably about six and a half weeks um I turned out I was earlier but um and that's the thing sorry just to say about miscarriage the first time you get pregnant I think there's a sense of innocence and excitement about it and that is torn from you it's stolen mm. when you have a pregnancy loss you know I don't think it's ever the same anyway in my experience anyway it's yeah. never the same again you don't have the same sort of innocence and excitement about it all yeah. so um I ended up contacting anyway one of the consultants I'd seen previously in Hollis Street and he said look come in to me for a scan because I just said to him you know I was in here last month what four weeks yeah. ago five weeks ago having miscarriage went in got scanned and he he found a sack an empty sack and he said you know if you are six half weeks or so we really should be seeing the signs of a, a growing baby and possibly a heartbeat and um, but your dates may be wrong and um, so maybe come back next week but I remember thinking oh my dates probably aren't wrong you know it's probably just what they call an, an embryonic pregnancy and you know I was sort of thinking okay we'll probably lose it over the weekend and I'll have to go in next week and you know say that to him anyway my pregnancy symptoms kind of increased a little bit over the weekend I remember feeling more tired and a little bit queasy and I went back to him the, the following week and and um, he did a scan again and he detected a heartbeat and I have it all on film because obviously Wes couldn't come in because of COVID restrictions he couldn't come in to um the clinic with me so uh, you know it's lovely to have it all but it was me going holy shit holy shit holy shit a heartbeat because you'd never seen that before no I'd never yeah. got to a point of seeing a heartbeat so it was incredibly exciting yeah. I mean I remember saying to the um consultant you know what is that and he goes that is an embryo with a beating heart or a fetus or yeah whatever he said with a beating heart and I just thought wow so at that stage I rang my mom and told her I actually sent her the video first and said this just happened and she was like what, what? you know what is this who yeah. is this what am I looking at <laughs> <laughs> and rang Wes and um again my mom was excited but we were all very cautious I mean there was no sense of this will actually happen I was just like oh this is cool but you know yeah. I'll still get on with my day mm. um so uh, the consultant asked me to go back the following week just he just wanted to keep a really close eye on me at this stage yeah. so I went back the following week third week in a row and he um did another scan and this time he he sort of you know put the gel and the trans transducer over my tummy and he said just hold on a sec and I said okay what did you see is there more than one because I'd seen something as well on the screen and he he did, actually did a transvaginal um, scan as well yeah. to, to double check. But yeah, he said, yeah, it's twins. 
And again, third week in a row, me filming going, oh my God, oh my God, I thought I was going to faint. Um, and there very clearly on the screen, we could see two sacks and two heartbeats wow. and, you know, the little curled up shape. And so he called a nurse in, she confirmed it as well. And they were able to say at that stage that they were identical twins um, sharing placenta. Wow. So he just, he told me that obviously my fertilized egg had split at a certain point um, earlier in the process, um, you know, the, the few day kind of window, if it had split, it would have, they would have had separate placentas and then a bit later on and um, they may have been um, conjoined twins, but it's just at this stage when they split, they shared a placenta. So it just put me in the category of kind of higher risk. I mean, mm -hmm. twins anyway are considered a high risk pregnancy but it just meant that I needed to be more closely monitored um, there's there are conditions called twin to twin transfusion yeah. um you know and you know placental issues that can arise so um I was just sort of closely monitored then I was in every week for a while for scans um everything looked really positive I mean I remember seven weeks uh, my consultant saying that you know you could tell you know your in-laws if you want because you know he just said a strong heartbeat at seven weeks the sign but I didn't I mean I had all these feelings then to sort of deal with um where you know I'd only just the month or a couple of months before gone on national tv and said I couldn't have a baby and I needed medical help and now you know I'd been very comfortable being a public person talking about fertility and surrogacy and maybe being an advocate for surrogacy and saying you know well this is a great means to a family um for couples who can't have a baby by themselves and now suddenly I had to deal with the idea that actually I was pregnant with two babies not one yeah. and having been told that I couldn't carry any so I had a lot of feelings to sort of deal with it's like reversing all you thought you knew about yourself mm. which and I had made peace I'd been, been very comfortable being the girl who couldn't have a baby without medical help and I'd been very open about mm. saying that and even strangers would say to me say at events or weddings oh do you have any kids and I'd say well no we we need a surrogate we need help and you know I was fine yeah. fine with that um so yeah it, it was strange like reversing all you think you know about yourself um so I kind of went through that it took me a long time I mean we we did have a scare actually at around 11 weeks I had a bleed quite a, a sudden heavy bleed at home and had to rush into hospital get checked but um again the the twins were fine it was just to do with I think growth and a little blood vessel had burst um and I mean I, I have to say it was a very smooth I mean twin pregnancy itself isn't easy um you do get very sort of heavy and tired um I remember okay let's just about... remember for a second that you also have a brand new baby yeah <laughs> also yeah, no. so you're not just pregnant with twins but you also have and, a brand new baby and, <laughs> and are in lockdown, lockdown. <laughs> I mean, luckily my husband was home as well. Yeah. And, you know, I remember Sophia was four months. Okay. When I, when mm -hmm. I found out I was pregnant with twins. So she was on two naps a day. So I used to just go nap with her in the yeah. afternoon. I, yeah. I couldn't get through the day without naps. I had really debilitating nausea mm -hmm. as plenty of women do for the first trimester, but it actually, I didn't get sick, but it was just all day nausea, which, um, you know, 
isn't pleasant, especially when you're living with someone who wants to cook scallops. Oh, I remember no. one day having to say, just I, I had to just leave the house and get some fresh air. Now that that, that would be grounds for divorce. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah. It was the first and last time he'd done it. I don't know what he was thinking. Um, but at what point know. did you really believe that it was happening? Because I, surely, you know, throughout the pregnancy, you it, it just must have been so surreal. To have gone through all of this and then suddenly like not just be pregnant with one baby, but with two. It was, and it was surreal for so many ways. Obviously the situation we were in, um, in terms of just Ireland being in in lockdown, it meant that I wasn't obviously seeing friends. My, My family knew, but I kind of hadn't told anyone else apart from a couple of good friends. And, um, yeah, it was a bizarre feeling, but it was nice to have a little secret as well. And, I was looking back a while ago at my Instagram pictures from then and I just had props. I had like Sophia or the dog or, you know. A pillow. You, <laughs> yeah. you do show quite quickly with the twin pregnancy. I mean, you, it's hard to hide the bump. I was actually big enough by 12 weeks. Um, but yeah, it just, the time seemed to to go quickly. And um, by the time I announced it, I was halfway through. And each scan, I mean, was very positive. Their, their growth trajectory was very positive no signs of any issues um that I mentioned earlier with twins um you know it just kind of progressed obviously you know looking after Sophia got more difficult um we we did have to get help with her then after a while and I just had to rest an awful lot because I found actually the more I rested the more you know, the more the the boys sort of grew well, I mm. suppose, from scan to scan. So I, I did. I found it hard to walk around too much um, after a while. But, you know, their their growth was very good. Um, the consultant and doctors, you know, the, the twin team in Hollis Street were very happy with how, how their growth and development was going. So it got to, um, it was my final scan, actually. Um, so really from the beginning, sorry, I should say, I was advised, strongly advised to opt for a cesarean. Um, and it would have been on the 23rd of November at 36 weeks. Um, so I went in the week before for my final scan and they discovered um, what's called placental insufficiency. Mm. So um, it just meant that, well, they they found that Hugo um, had grown only a couple of ounces in the past fortnight, whereas Oscar had grown a pound or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, towards the end, they, they do put on that bit of body fat. So um, I was told to... to go home they were concerned but obviously tried not to to show too much concern but I was told anyway to to go home get grab my hospital bag which was already packed um say goodbye to Sophia and check into hospital that afternoon because they'd be delivered the very next morning at 35 weeks so um yeah just went home said my goodbyes to Sophia went back into hospital and they just monitored the boys heartbeats closely um luckily Hugo he was fine but it was caught you know I suppose it hadn't been going on that long but um they I think they were grateful that it was caught when it was um and they were yeah delivered the the very next morning and it was funny because I think when you have a due date in your head you think okay I'll get all the stuff done and I had like work stuff to still get done and all (laughs) sorts of things to do and I remember in hospital that night with my laptop just sending emails and going and I had looking back on it but it was Sophia's first birthday um on so say I would have had the sorry Sophia's first birthday on the 
1st of November and I was due to go into hospital on the 23rd. So I booked a birthday cake for her and balloons and organized a little birthday celebration for her. And obviously I had to cancel them and, you know, write, send emails to people saying, I'm just in hospital. I'll be having my twins tomorrow. So <laughs> I can't do this thing or that or whatever. Anyway, what are we like us as women? I know, like trying to tie up all the loose ends and it's like, actually, no, none of it matters. Yeah, <laughs> none of it matters. Just relax. Yeah. You're, having, yeah. you're giving birth to two yeah. humans tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the babies were born the next morning and um, I suppose, yeah, it's just, a, I mean, it was a really positive, exciting, happy experience um, and probably more smooth. I mean, in terms of the pregnancy and the birth, it was more smooth and less anxious for me than Sophia's mm. pregnancy and birth again because of the lack of control I think you know we handed control of everything over to our surrogate mm. and then the medical team over there and obviously they were fantastic and everything went well but I think when you're the one carrying the babies you have more control over what you're doing what you're eating where you're going you know all that kind of thing and yeah. um you know they yeah they were born by c-section Wes was there he uh he loved all the the gore and the blood I think he was filming it going he was like they've made the first incision and wow and um you know what you want to hear I think as the, the woman giving birth is is your babies cry yeah. you know I, I was just desperate to hear them cry and just know that they were okay and Hugo was born first and he was crying and Wes said he's perfect he's perfect he's absolutely perfect and he was handed to me and you know had a bit of skin on skin and then Oscar in in the time that obviously couldn't feel anything but in the time that Hugo came out and like the short three minutes between them both coming out Oscar did a, a huge role in all the space he obviously has, he said, he's like oh, Woo! I have so much party <laughs> yeah I could do a huge role so um you know the consultant was laughing he was like he had to be taken out in a different way than was was expected um and you know it all it all went well I won't say it's easy to make a recovery after mm. a cesarean or childbirth in general mm -hmm. um there's a lot of elements involved and um but you do you get through it and my mantra was always um you know this is tough but I'm tougher and you know you just you do you heal and you there's an awful lot of support there as well. I mean, um, I, I breastfed as well for, I lasted about six weeks um, through mainly expressing. Um, the boys were in the NICU for the first week, um, but they, we were able to bring them home then. And I used to go in and deliver um, colostrum, obviously at first, yeah. every three hours and then breast milk. Um, and I hired one of these medical grades or hospital grades um, breast pumps as well, which I had. I will never get me. that sound out of my head that sound no. of the breast pump thinking, no and the feeling of it but thinking back like in the week where I was discharged maybe a couple of days before the boys were so I went home to my one-year-old Sophia and I used to sit there feeding her porridge in the morning with my double breast pumps on you know under my dressing gown as you know as if it was perfectly normal yeah. and then I'd put you know I'd decant them into little bottles and put them on ice and drive into Hollow Street and drop them into the boys and NICU and feed them or I did do a bit of breastfeeding as well but the boys were so little as well mm. that it was 
more I suppose straightforward to to keep an eye on the the volume they were having and then um, they had a little they latched on okay but I think it was easier for them to take the teat um and so we just continued that at home and then after yeah after about a month and a half um supply wasn't meeting demand and I think I was just worn out as well I mean I was still trying to look after you know Sophia who felt and looked huge compared to the <laughs> twins but now I look back she was only one I mean they're She's so little tiny, at one yeah. they're tiny but I was trying to you know give her th- her three meals a day mm. and snacks and um you know we did have plenty of help and support which um was the only way we we survived it my mum used to turn up every day with food for me um but you do get worn out <laughs> With, with newborn twins and a one-year-old um but we you know we, you get through it and um we were still in lockdown at that stage and nobody was obviously going anywhere um we did end up getting a night nurse um I remember the first night we brought them home and we followed advice from Hollis Street to keep them in the the one cot downstairs during the day so they could be side by side but mm-hmm. we could supervise them in case overheated or anything yep. like that but just to keep them in separate cots on either side of our bed at night so we could just one each one each basically yeah. um so there was no chance of one parent getting more sleep than the other <laughs> um, we're in this together <laughs> yeah totally but um we did that and I was you're, you know you're buzzing with adrenaline bringing your newborns mm. home for the first time and I remember the first night we got 20 minutes sleep <laughs> um because the boys just didn't settle at the same time and you know the next night we got 30 minutes sleep and I remember my dad coming over and just being like you guys are gray with exhaustion um you need to do something about this so I was able to contact a friend who was able to recommend um, a night nurse who was able to come over and help um just every second night actually Um, but it made such a difference knowing that, that every second night we'd get a full night's sleep. I think and even knowing that you're going to get a, a sleep the next night gets you through the bad night. If you know yeah. that you have a sleep coming. Like obviously on the bad nights when we had the twins, we probably managed an hour or two yeah. at the most. But at least we'd wake up, wait, not wake up, but get up in the morning and say, we sleep tonight, we sleep tonight. <laughs> and this is this is still with a 12 month old you know to look after yeah. but Sophia was fine actually she she was great she kind of just went down and slept um yeah but you just you you plow through yeah and um <laughs> you get on with it and we just couldn't believe that within the space of a year we went from zero to three babies and um, after all we'd been through what do you think happened but like, is there any explanation? Have you ever been given an explanation of, of um, how you had gone through so many losses and then this happened? No, I mean, I think it just, it's the mystery of human reproduction in the human body. And certainly I did ask my consultant um, at, at the time when I was pregnant, you know, how he thought it mm. could have happened. You know, there's no medical explanation that um, can be given. It's too hard to quantify and and measure anyway but um he did give anecdotal evidence of couples he'd seen going through IVF or about to start IVF and getting pregnant or going through surrogacy as we did and getting pregnant naturally I think it was a series of unique events really which started from um our surrogate sent me a text message on January 1st 2020 you know just to say happy new year and that she wanted to give us a sibling for Sophia so 
I remember just thinking, well, you know, we had such a positive experience. She's such a wonderful person. Um, we still have embryos over in, in Kiev in the clinic. So really from when she's allowed to um, try to get pregnant again, I think she had to wait eight months to be medically cleared. But I just thought, OK, we'll start again in July. So um, start the process again. We won't even have to travel over there. I won't have to go through the whole procedure. We'll just start again. And hopefully she'll be able to give Sophia a sibling. And I secretly wished for twins. <laughs> so you put that out and there into the universe. I did. And that's what the universe so, brought back. <laughs> yeah. So I switched off. I mean, at this point, we'd mm. switched off even trying ourselves. But there's a certain part of your brain, I think, that doesn't stop trying either, mm. you know. Yeah. Um, so so that happened. And then the, the miscarriage um, happened as well, which apparently um, increased my fertility mm -hmm. and then we went into lockdown which I think just calmed me it, mm. I think I, I just live on adrenaline and stress and I seem to thrive under pressure like so many people do nowadays mm. and I just maybe my body was able to to recalibrate and heal whatever issue had been there and and looking back I think maybe any immune related issues were actually triggered by stress mm. but at the time you know my mom and Wes would say, you know, maybe slow down a bit, stop taking on everything. And, you know, but I think ironically, I, I made myself busier than ever because we weren't having a family yeah. because I couldn't have a baby. I wanted to take my mind off it and, and squeeze in as much as I possibly could to avoid Oracle questions about when I would settle down and have kids. So it was a catch 22 situation and it's amazing how your psychology works. It's only when you look back that you realize why you're, you act as you way, do yeah. um so I think those things really those factors combined together um just the, the enforced rest at home um and Sophia you know she ended up becoming a, a good enough sleeper that we were getting rest um I you know we were able to kind of relax and just make the most of our yeah. time in lockdown and looking back it does feel like a simpler time when we didn't know how long it would all go on for and you know, I remember the weather being good and having barbecues outside and just enjoying the garden. I know. Um, so I think it, those things. It was nice going back to normal or more normal, but it's um, it also I think everyone kind of looks back on that period of time with kind of some nostalgia <laughs> because it was it was yeah. kind of nice just having your own little unit. And I know not everyone was lucky enough to, you know, have have a good home environment. But for but for those who did, it, it was a nice time. I think for a lot of yeah. people. Yeah. Of course, a lot of people went through awful trauma mm. and illness and, mm. you know, businesses closing and that kind of thing. But yeah, as you say, for those of us lucky enough to just have a home to enjoy and, you know, a supportive environment, um, you know, it was a simpler time, I suppose. Yes. And there was a real sort of community feel, you know, we're all in this together. Kind of, kind of like the 90s, but with internet. <laughs> yes, yes. I was about to say it, she was like the 90s. But yeah, but we could all share our, our memes. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Um, I could honestly, I could talk to you all day. Your story is absolutely incredible. Like just the trauma that you've been through, but then what you have today is just, you know, I'm sure you pinch yourself sometimes I do I can actually hear that the twins have woken up from their yeah. nap but yeah. uh they're fine they're they're downstairs they looked after but um I do I really you know it's easy to go day to day and just get caught up in the busyness mm. of everyday life um with the family and 
kind of forget how far you've come but it's so important and it's important to do these um, podcasts and conversations and to talk about your experiences and mm-hmm. share share our stories because it, I suppose it's a nice reminder of how far you know you've come yourself but also to I think it's so important to share these stories to be able to support others mm-hmm. and you know again that's why I wrote my book is to be able to to share in much more detail than I've just shared now and it's hard to even be succinct about the story because there are so many elements to it I mean three major parts to it I haven't even gone into what life is like with three (laughs) three babies but we won't even go there I think anyone anyone with small children knows what it's like Um, but you know they're fantastic and it's just we're so happy and Mm. you know it's gorgeous just to see them run around together and that's what we wanted really was just to have three children who were sorry wanted once once we found out we were expecting the twins not from the very beginning um but you know just what we wanted was just yeah three children close in age who were able just to have fun together and um just enjoy each other's company that's not to say there aren't fights from time to time (laughs) i think that's normal with children but um generally they're great friends and um yeah it's just you know, life is obviously different now. I don't even get to leave the house on my own that much anymore. <laughs> but thanks to the wonders of technology, we're um, able to, to communicate yeah. and work from home as well, which is great. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it is such a precious time and I'm just lapping it all up. I'm just trying to really enjoy it as much as possible because these baby years, as everyone says, go so quickly. Sophia starts preschool this year. And the boys next crazy, year isn't and, it? it's so um, crazy how quick it goes i'm going to yeah i'm going to miss having them at home yeah but so it's a, cu- a lovely time a couple of final questions one what would you say to anyone who is you know i'm sure i'm sure you get a lot of people messaging you who are going through um similar struggles and what is usually your advice like what what was the most helpful thing that was said to you during the time when you're going through the recurrent miscarriage and pregnancy loss? You know, it's a tough one because it's very hard to believe that it will actually happen. Mm. You know, I found it hard to believe that it would happen, although I did stay positive. I did visualize. Um, I used to go into our spare room and say, this is our baby's nursery. You know, this is our, our child's room. And you know, this is what it will be one day. So I did a lot of that sort of visualization stuff and and really stayed positive. I think, you know, it's very hard to say to a couple or an individual going going through a fertility struggle or pregnancy loss that everything will be okay. You can't wave a magic wand and fix the trauma they're, they're going through. Um, but the best thing I can advise is just to get all the support you can um, have that one or two people to speak in close confidence with. Um, don't bottle things up don't go through it alone mm. even even your partner who you're going through it with you know you need someone else outside of that little bubble you're in I think because your partner's struggling you know you're going to have to both support each other as a couple but also as individuals Individual, yeah. and everyone has a different way of dealing with things you know Wes was very strong for a long time mm. and he picked me up and comforted me but I remember one particular night he was out with some friends and two of his friends had recently their wives had had given birth and they were obviously just talking about fatherhood and the highs and lows of it all and they'd had a few drinks and Wes came home and just burst into tears Mm. out of nowhere and he's not one to 
cry out of nowhere but he just said it's so hard that we can't have a baby my Mm. my friends were talking about their babies and I just felt so sad that we're going through this and you know he had obviously bottled it up for so Mm. long that it all just came spilling out so you know after that really I encouraged him to talk about it and men perhaps need a little traditionally anyway need a little bit maybe more encouragement with talking about um, how they're feeling about a situation so you know that is a top piece of advice um I suppose another piece of advice is to just ask all the questions you know when you do visit a doctor or an expert um in reproductive medicine or um anything like that just to ask as many questions as you can I found that by, and not everyone is in a position to do their own research or knows what, what to look for or ask about. But um, I found that I kind of had to take control of what I wanted to know. And, and I wasn't afraid to ask for different tests if I thought they might help um, to mm-hmm. find out more, or piece together the puzzle. So, you know, sometimes doctors are used to saying the same Thing to different um, patients or may think that you don't understand what they're saying and have to really simplify it but um, you know I did do a lot of reading um, and I suppose I, I looked at a lot of these um, support you know support groups and um, support pages as well online and just read other people's stories um, and again I remember thinking if if I ever get a chance to share our story it might help someone else out there and I was desperate for a story of hope I always clung on to the stories of hope that I could find um actually one I've mentioned before is a couple we met on a family holiday I mean years ago now but they had their son with them and they told us that they had tried to conceive for 15 years I mean all but given up and then out of nowhere their their son came along So I remember thinking, you know, if that can happen to, that was one yeah. of the stories I kind of clung on to. If that can happen to them, it can happen to me. So, um, or us. And, you know, you do just find these little stories here and there and just hold on to them. Well, isn't it so. such a full circle event that you've been able to write a book about this now and then pass on that those stories of hope to the next generations of people going through this? Yes, I mean the reason. Yeah, the I reason have I, I have it here, but the reason so, Sophia there, and I, oh, I remember, and um, I remember for the photo shoot having to put my feet up for the rest of the day because I think I was wearing heels and holding Sophia, um. But it's it's lovely that my three babies are there yeah. in the photo, yeah. and um, yeah, but yeah, twin twin bump is no laughing matter, um. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I wrote the book, obviously, for anyone who's been through a fertility struggle, through pregnancy loss. And, you know, everyone has such different experiences, even whether it's something like stillbirth or surrogacy or IVF. Um, What I found from talking to so many people over the last few years is that our emotions tend to be similar. That feeling of loss and trauma and frustration and loneliness and the feeling that there isn't enough... um, you know, conversation out there about what we're all going through. And that's really been a big reason why I've, I've talked about it so publicly and written a book about it and talked about it where and when I can, because, you know, if my experiences can contribute to the conversation somewhere and to, to make others feel less alone mm. and less isolated, then that's so important. And there has been a, a, a big change I found in, in how we're speaking about fertility and pregnancy loss in the last few years. 
um, women are and men are coming out and being so much more open about it. And that's through the efforts of um, you as well. And, and, you know, everyone out there talking about how they got their families. You know, yeah. there are, as we know, many different ways that we can have our families nowadays. And hopefully that will be recognized by everyone soon. Um, but yeah, so and obviously I wrote the book then um, for for my children, for Sophia, Hugo and Oscar to read in the future. Yeah. Because as we all know, the years pass by quickly, details fade. Yeah. I wanted to, as challenging as it was to write a book with uh, newborns and a toddler last year, it, it had to be done last year when the memories were fresh and yeah. when I could dig deep and get all the information out there. And, you know, I want them to be able to read it in the future and, and know how exactly they came into the world mm. and how wanted they are and how loved they are and particularly for Sophia to realize that you know I still hold on to guilt that I couldn't give birth to her and it, it may sound kind of silly even but you know I don't view her obviously as any different she's still my biological daughter but I do feel guilty that I couldn't hold her and feel her kicks and I would have loved that so much but you know that was one of the the highlights of uh, being pregnant with the boys was just mm. the, the elbows and the knees and <laughs> you know it can be painful but uh, it's, a, it's such a, it's incredible. a real yeah. physical you yeah. know it's it's real life um and you know it's it's magical um you know so I want her to know that she's no different to her brothers mm. um in any way and to her to always feel equal so um you know in the future they might read it or they might just think I'm really embarrassing but... <laughs> probably probably both <laughs> I would say yeah. um but maybe at some yeah. stage yeah um final question what is your favorite thing about being mummy to these three beautiful children I think it's the bond we have you know the I just love waking up in the morning and seeing them and um, the cuddles we have and, you know, the feeling that I'm their mom and their protector and um, that they come to me with everything. I mean, usually for snack demands, to be honest, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, the love that they have for me and I have for them. And as a family, we're, you know, just a family unit and we can laugh together and we do a lot of dancing at home. The boys love music. And um, I particularly like David Guetta kind of <laughs> stuff bizarrely because I, I certainly didn't listen to it during my pregnancy. <laughs> but um, Wes puts on sort of you know real dancey music and the boys go like <laughs> this dancing. It's it's hilarious to watch. But yeah, I think it's just that bond that you have mm. with your children is just special and a feeling that we're family and that we're here for each other forever. Um, thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, honestly, thank yeah, I, I could I could talk to you for hours more. Um, just about all of it, all of the the struggles, I know. parenthood, kids, relationships. Um, I know I could too, <laughs> and it's it's so sort of healing as well. I think to talk about it, and each time I do go into detail, and mm. I'm sure you're the same. You've got an amazing story, but I think every time um, you do talk about it, you you. So unearth past feelings or feelings you've buried or traumas you've buried. And it is healing to talk, um, even if you've told the story before. Um, I think I, yeah, I think when you have such a such a story like this, every time you tell it, you find something a little bit different. Um, and I, yeah. don't, I don't think that's ever going to change. You'll you'll um, 
you'll always discover new things yeah absolutely and um even something I haven't really touched on that much is um, how it affects a marriage or a relationship mm-hmm. um, and that kind of thing. But that's a yeah, whole for, nother podcast. A, another podcast. Another day. <laughs> yeah, I've probably absolutely. talked enough at this stage. I think I'm emotionally spent. <laughs> that was like a therapy <laughs> session. <laughs> yeah, that's was. <laughs> yeah. But thank well, you so uh, much again. I'll let you get back to um, your babies and... I know, I, what, I, what chaos unfolds. I'm yeah. sure they're having lunch and I don't think we can get through a meal without f- food being flung everywhere. So that's all um, part of the fun, all normal. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. At least we have a dog who um, <laughs> has developed a pot belly, I think, from <laughs> all of the snacks. <laughs> um, thank you so much and have a beautiful rest of your day. Thanks again. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Fertility Talks, the Therapy Fertility podcast. If you have, please rate, review and subscribe. For more information on Therapy Fertility and the services we provide, please visit our website at www.therapyfertility.com.